Hi, you guys. This is Liz Ryan, and this is episode 37 of the Truth About Work podcast. And I want to start off today by just saying thank you so much for listening to the podcast, sharing it with your friends, and thank you for sending questions and observations, things for us to talk about on the podcast. It's so awesome. I, I'm really grateful. You can send your questions for me to support at humanworkplace.com. I can't answer them all, of course, but I'll answer some questions here on the podcast, some of them on Twitter, or LinkedIn, our blog, wherever. And, you know, we're talking about work and uh, all of its um, complexities and how to figure it out, how to make sense of it. But you know what? I, um, I did a poll on Twitter the other day about neuro, so many names for it, neurodiversity, neurodivergence, whatever, neuroatypicality. Asking, hey, if you were a little kid today instead of an adult, would you be likely to be diagnosed with uh, a neurodiverse issue? In other words, you know, on the autism spectrum or whatever, different learning style. And 50% of respondents to the poll said they would, which I love. I have always thought that, that this idea of there's typical and then there's atypical, like a binary, is so dumb. Why would it be that way? Why, what a human attribute sorts out that way? Here's all the typical kids and then here's the non. Isn't it, isn't everything a spectrum really in nature and we are nature? So I thought that was interesting though, because I suffered a ton from my, uh, 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 the intersection between who I am neurologically, whatever, energetically, <laughs> physically, and, and the way the world is structured, starting with, starting with first grade. Kindergarten was amazing. It's fantastic. But then first grade, it was like, you know, rage against the machine right away. And it, and it has not ended to this day. It's been fantastic to see that gap, just uh, to, to, to learn about where people struggle against systems, strictures that, you know, are man-made and, um, and to help them through that. And, and, and the way that, that, showed up for me in first grade was confusion. I didn't understand. People were getting mad at me and I didn't understand why. And that's a horrible feeling as a kid or as an adult. Why are you mad? What did I do? I'm 37 episodes of this podcast. I might've told you the story before, but for folks who are new or, or maybe in case I forgot, um, a story that really shook me was third grade. I was already very, very alert and aware and, and, uh, in fight or flight mode all the time because we moved, our family moved from Western Pennsylvania, very rural, um, you know, they call, some people call that area Pennsylvania. Um, and it was, I mean, and then we moved to Northern New Jersey, the suburbs of New York. And it was a real culture shock for me, eight years old. So I'm in school already freaked out. Like I don't fit in, I got to fit in. And, and then I got in trouble with the teacher who was, had been very nice, but I hit a nerve. And I didn't understand hitting nerves. This is how I started to learn. The way that I hit a nerve with her was she, she wrote with chalk on the blackboard at the time, she wrote uh, three columns of words. And she's writing them for some exercise. And I think I've anticipated what she's gonna teach us. And I threw my hand up and she said, what? And I said, I, I, I see it. You see what? I see the misspelled word. She just gave it me. It wasn't a spelling exercise, evidently. She said, there's no misspelled word. And I said, oh, yeah, in the second column, gerbil. Because we had a gerbil at some point. I saw the box, gerbil food or whatever, gerbil bedding, whatever gerbils need, G-E-R-B-I-L. She had G-E-R-B-L-E. And 
I said, gerbil, it's G-E-R-B-I-L. Boom, right to the principal's office, no explanation. I'm like horrified, I'm a little girl in a, in a time when little girls, it's like, you know, be good. And I was Catholic, super Catholic parents. That was actually my first year also in public school because I had been to parochial school before then when the whole entire message I got for two years was shut up and sit down and be quiet. I mean, I guess shut up and be quiet are the same thing, but they said it twice. <laughs> it was hammered in there. It was, it was real weird. When, when, when the father, the priest came into the room, we all jumped to attention. Good morning, father. I mean, it was, yeah, it was the olden days. Although I was shocked when, when I got, grew up myself and had kids, how similar, how much fear was just baked in on a daily basis and nobody even commented on it. We say support the child, but really no, no. Our youngest just graduated from high school this spring and I am still in recovery from all those years. Our oldest kids, twins, went to preschool in 1995. So for all those 25 years, I've been like holding my breath. And, you know, sometimes going down to the school or to the district to raise hell. I never wanted to be that mom. I had no choice. I was pu pushed into it by circumstances. But it helped me, helped them, helped, help, uh, uh, you know, help, helped us all sort of say, why? This makes no sense. It's abuse. But we don't question it. Shut up and sit down. And so in third grade, I was sent to the principal's office and they didn't, they couldn't explain it either. They said, ah, just sit here for a minute and you'll go back upstairs. It was very cynical. It was a way of uh, not dealing with the teacher's stress in the moment. How dare you question me? This is such a longstanding, how dare you question me? You're eight years old. I, I know I'm not even trying to question you. I thought you set this up as an exercise for us kids to notice the misspelled word. And I have no idea why I'm in the principal's office. And I've heard dozens, scores, hundreds of stories like this. We will teach you without teaching you. We will teach you to, 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 to not do that thing that, that rattled me as an adult, that sent me into fear, into fight or flight. And I'm the teacher, so I say, get out of here, go to the principal's office. Why? Why? Just it's stressful being a teacher. And they don't get enough support. And they don't understand children. And they don't understand trust versus fear and we don't talk about it and we don't talk about it at work and the same thing happens at work and you get in trouble you don't even know why you're in trouble it's totally unfair somebody got miffed that you threaten their authority that's the worst thing you can do how dare you how dare you right i'm the manager it's weird because when you have consultants expert consultants that show up to help you with the problem we don't scream and thunder at them typically but with employment we have this paradigm right from the military. You're an underling. You signed up to be an underling and you're going to take it and you're not going to talk back. And this is how I reinforce my fearful, you know, feeling of authority, superiority, whatever. It's real gross. And that's one reason why we do the podcast. But I have a question right now from Yannick. Hi, Liz. You wrote on LinkedIn how it's a capital crime to lie in your resume, but lying in a job ad is not even a thing. Can you say more about that? For sure, Yannick. Yeah. So this is part of the same paradigm I just mentioned with questioning the spelling of gerbil. You know, it lying is elevated to this absolutely definitive. And this is even in our court system. I read somewhere that, how does this work? It used to be a crime if a law enforcement officer, you know, municipal, county, state, federal would ask you a question, you would lie to them. And then 
there was some court case and they said exculpatory lies like no i didn't do it you know in the moment are not criminal or something like these are the conversations that serious grown-ups are having because because lying you know we elevated lying to this like oh i'm parents my parents many parents say there because you lied to me because it's control it's not i'm afraid i want to understand my child's fear i want to assuage that fear they said what they said there's so many videos uh, out on youtube and wherever TikTok of little kids and it's so cute and they lie they have the frosting on their right on their lips did you eat the cupcake no mama and it's like cute but that's that's part of the toxicity is that we elevate this idea of lying to you lied to me um but meanwhile rashomon right the film the, the the idea that people have different perspectives on things someone doesn't always have to be right and someone else definitively wrong right and truth can be intensely personal and it's not a matter of pulling the wool over somebody's eyes or purposely trying to mislead them although obviously that happens it's interesting where does it happen where does the purposely trying to mislead people happen it happens in politics it happens in advertising it happens at work but that's that's not considered a lie but you're telling me things that are factually untrue I mean, you could get a job and they could say, in this job, you will be promoted to this role in six months. And here's the thing. You have to hit these targets. You hit them all. You're not promoted. Ah, well, you know, I was thinking about it and I realized you need a little more coaching. The lying is part of being an underling. The lying is part of being just a lowly citizen or just a lowly student or just a lowly employee. But we at the top are allowed to lie our asses off. We see it right now in our government. This is a part of the sickness that we don't call that out. So people get upset with me from time to time. Wow, these little crafty wordplay things that you have people puff up their experience or, you know, or or evade the um, black hole recruiting system or all that. It's, oh, don't you think it's kind of unethical? Shut the hell up, unethical. No, it's righteous. It's righteous to find ways to right the wrong that, that bureaucratic systems can so easily create, especially the principal wrong of trying to convince you, gaslight you, that you have nothing in this equation. No. And this is one reason why people go off on their own consulting. It's to regain power that they lost. Yeah, it's scary. Of course it's scary. I remember saying, I, I, I don't think I'm employable, you guys. I don't think I'm employable in a job right now. I'm going to consult. And it was like, you know, it wasn't Nirvana, but it was like, wow, Plato's cave, you guys, opening up you know, a door that had seemed to be shut. Like I was just going to have to toe this line for the rest of the time that I might work. No, no, because as a consultant, it is, uh, when I say consultant, I'm talking about an independent, a lot of ways to consult, but the, the way that I'm referring to right now is an independent consultant going to organizations to sell uh, 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 advice. And I know consultant, the word consultant has changed so much over the years. And some people, it's synonymous with contractor, which is also fine. But that's much more like an employment type situation where you do not call the shots. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about consulting where you get to say, I will help these folks and I will not help these folks because it, it's, it feels gross. It doesn't feel healthy and wholesome. And I don't have to do it. I could use the money for sure, but I have the freedom of choice. And they treat you differently. They treat you differently when you don't have to be there. It's weird, but, but there is nothing wrong with, with, with standing in that power. And that's why I want everybody to stretch and develop those entrepreneurial muscles to have that freedom, to be able to, to speak your truth. 
right? That's, that's why we do this podcast, for example. So yeah, so I don't know if I said enough about that, Yannick, or if that's what you were interested in, but lying on your resume as a capital crime, you're right, a huge um, cardinal sin is just absurd. I mean, yeah, sure, it's not cool to make up a degree that you don't have or make up an employment at a company you didn't have, but I mean, shading things, for example, who would feel if there's some, if there's police of lying on your resume, judge and jury, you know, people, people policing what's truthful and what's a lie on your resume, who, who would self-designate themselves the arbiter of that? Your old boss. Well, who the, who the hell are they? They're not your boss anymore. You guys might disagree completely on the facts as to what you accomplished, but who's going to be a better judge of what you accomplished on any past job than you? And if somebody doubts that you accomplished what you said you accomplished, then let them ask you detailed questions and see how you answer. Your boss wants to constrain you in, in the fear-based system and say, no, you didn't do this. It's like I did too. I, I, know, I understand what I did way better than you do. And I might understand the subject matter better than you do. It's, it's a farce that I'm the boss, so therefore I, I know best. No, you don't. And, and the act of, of, of you know, manifesting that is to leave. And now you put whatever you want on your resume, right? The, 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 the idea that, oh, it's all about accuracy. What is accuracy in this knowledge economy? I know the impact that I made. At least I can extrapolate what I believe to be the impact that I made at that job. And I can lay out that case. And every single other hiring manager or client is free to accept or reject my explanation. But my old boss is just not the judge of that. And this is the freedom, the stretching, you know, unfolding your wings spreading your wings that I'm talking about. We all need to get better at that. Claim it. I have another question about claim it here in a minute. Okay. Next uh, question is from Dang. Hi, Dang. Nope. Is that it? D-E-N-G? I'm going with Dang. Um, hi, Liz. You talk about weaponizing self-awareness. Please say more about that. It sounds fascinating, but I have no idea what you mean. Did I talk about that? I might have mentioned it in a previous podcast. Look at talking about left brain, right brain, the concept of left brain, right brain. I think, I think uh, neurologists now say, you know, both sides of your brain can do a lot of the stuff, <clears throat> a lot of the same stuff, but it's a system with redundancy, our IT friends would say. But we still use left brain, right brain to distinguish between kind of the linear, linear logic driven, you know, numeric stuff on the left and the more right brain, holistic stuff. That's why when you have a complicated problem to solve, people will say, let your right brain work on it. Like, don't think about it versus I'm going to parse it out. I never liked like the decision tree. I think the decision tree is great for things like which apartment should I take? You know, the decision tree where you take a blank sheet of paper and you make a horizontal line across the top of it and then a and then a vertical line coming down from the middle of the page and on the left you write all the pros the reasons to pick this apartment or the reasons to take this job or whatever or or marry this person and then on the right all the cons but if you think about it you're going to really marry a person because of a list of pros and cons no that's totally an energetic thing i love this person or i they're a great person but Spend the rest of my life, I'm not sure. It's not going to it's not going to boil down to elements. It's just not. It's going to be a body decision, a holistic decision. And I think all important decisions, if 
fall into that category. People always say, oh, I use decision trees to decide which job to take. I'm like, ugh. Is it the overwhelming question when you decide if you have more than one offer to, to say, where do I feel the best? I mean, where is my body trying to steer me? Our bodies have evolved for a really long time. Our trusty gut, our nervous system to keep us safe. We got to listen to them. It's not writing down terms on a page, which is like a parlor trick for our fancy little relatively modern brains, right? It's not, ugh. I would hate to think, well, this place has a better office and they pay more and they, yeah. I mean, money is really, really expensive, but I mean, not important, but come on. Where are you supposed to be? That's not elements. So, you know, this this idea of everything is is linear and logical and, and control-oriented, basically, is where weaponized self-awareness comes from. So what I mean by weaponized self-awareness is that self-awareness, such a gift from the gods, is knowing yourself. And, and by knowing yourself, gaining something incredibly powerful. You could say knowledge, you could say enlightenment, you could say power over situations, power over yourself. Knowing yourself is a lifelong practice and journey, just like yoga, just like spirituality, like a lot of things. And so knowing yourself is precious and it's hard. It's hard to go through those steps like, dang, I didn't realize I had this destructive or this self-defeating behavior, this thing that I do. We get that message from the universe. We're like, wow, thank you. But that's a painful message. It means I have to do work. So it's a personal journey and it's not easy, self-awareness. So imagine taking this like wonderful, personal, uh, uh, exposed, you know, potentially painful but enriching practice and reducing it down to a weapon. Oh, I'm going to ask job candidates what's their greatest weakness because I want to know if they're self-aware. It's a binary again. And I will decide, like the boss telling you what you can and cannot claim on your resume. Imagine an interviewer who's never met you for two seconds saying, I will determine whether or not you're self-aware by asking you about your greatest weakness and seeing what you tell me because I'm the authority figure in the room. And if you won't tell me something really raw and bare about yourself that you need to work on, then you are obviously not the right person for the job because you have too much self-esteem. They would say you're not self-aware, but the truth is it means you think too highly of yourself to grovel in front of a freaking nobody stranger. That's what I mean by weaponized self-awareness. And by the way, in our practice of HR, the conventional one that I denounce and I'm trying to supplant with a trust-based human way of doing HR and leadership, right? In our traditional paradigm, we weaponize everything. Any new term or concept comes down the pike that could be that could be positive and enriching and uplifting and trust building, um, we weaponize it. Coaching, the idea of coaching. I answered a question somewhere on some platform last night from a manager, God bless them, who wrote and said, of course I ask candidates about their greatest weakness because I'm, I'm gonna be their coach and I need to know where they need coaching. What does any of that even mean? Who told you that being a manager means being a, an involuntary coach that they're supposed to take your life guidance? We hire the, the bricklayer to come and lay bricks. We don't think we're going to tell them how to live. But this is baked into our notion of employment. I am your social, philosophical, intellectual be better. I am your superior. 
You're superior. You come on my team. It means you have to be willing to be coached by me. Isn't that gross and horrifying? And even if you were going to coach somebody, wouldn't you help them get stronger at what you're stronger? They're already strong at it's roll over and show me your soft underbelly. They have to be coached by me. Coaching is, is, is something people step into voluntarily, right? The coach doesn't say, I'm your coach. Shut up. That's what these insecure managers are getting for, for their time and energy on top of the paycheck is the ability to say, to tell other people how to live their life. And it's so toxic and it's bad for business, bad for your customers, bad for communities, obviously bad for individual people. But this is a lot of un, unlearning that we all have to do. This manager asked me, of course I have to ask about their weaknesses, right? Cause I got to know where I'm coaching them. Is that why you're hiring them to coach them on their weaknesses? And why, why would they even have weaknesses? The whole notion of weaknesses comes out of this toxic control, left brain linear idea that there are things you should be better at. Why though? I have a mission here on this planet. I'm on it. Why would I have to go over here and become better at this thing? Because it's the only thing I could think of that I'm not that great at. Actually, if we spent time thinking about it, why would we? There are countless things we're not good at. All of us. So what? The world is big and we need people good at all kinds of things. It's sick. It's sick. It's, it's unhealthy. That's what I'm saying. Dang. Here's another one. Transparency. They've weaponized that one now. Transparency. Let's be transparent. Let's, let's practice opening up the, 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 the veil. Let's practice opening up the, the, the barriers and just be, that takes incredible shared trust and you have to build that. No, you have to be transparent with me. You know who hears transparency weaponized all the time? Job seekers. Literally. They will get a call from a company they haven't talked to in six weeks and they'll say, we're preparing an offer. You are? I haven't talked to you in six weeks. I thought it was dead. I, I'm about to accept something from another company. Oh, you should have been more transparent with us. Your mom should have been more trans. What? I haven't heard from you in six weeks and you're going to accuse me of a lack of transparency? It's pure fear. Just like my third grade teacher. It's pure fear. Oh, well, you should have been more. Oh, you're so quick to give me advice. Let me give you some advice. You got a company? You're trying to hire people? Stay in touch with them. What? Six weeks and here's the offer? I don't, you thought I was sitting here painting my apartment for six weeks? What? So, so look for weaponized terms. Sound good, but they've been used in a really twisted, unhealthy fashion. I got a few more questions, but we'll save them for the next episode. Got to do a little bit of unbrainwashing around this term of uh, uh, this idea of references. Managers giving references. About 15 to 20 years ago, basically every corporation said, our managers aren't going to give references anymore for former employees. They have wonderful things to say about these former employees. Great things to say. Stories they can tell. I'd love to help this person. They left the company to go do something else. They moved across country. They whatever. They're not here anymore. I'd, I'd work with them again in a heartbeat. They were an amazing teammate. No, you can't do it. Companies say you're forbidden to do that because some manager might theoretically say something they should not. And our even inadvertently, and our company could be subject to a third party defamation claim. The employee says you defamed me. And so therefore going forward, all of our managers are forbidden now from giving references from former employees, even people who did an amazing job for 20 years in the company. Too bad it's a blanket policy applies to everybody. There shall be no exceptions. There are even companies that forbid you from leaving a LinkedIn recommendation for a former teammate. 
because they're afraid. Now think about that. I'm afraid of my own manager's speech. I'm afraid of my own manager's judgment. The managers I hired. We don't forbid them from recommending vendors or customers. We don't forbid them from speaking and writing in the conduct of their business every day. But employees are so unimportant. They're, it's so easily a stroke of the pen. Policy is no more references. Screw the former employees. Think about that, you guys. The damage, just so blithely, so, eh, nah, we don't have to do this. And so universally, nah, there's risk in it. Guess what? There's risk in everything. You won't take that tiny, insignificant risk. You won't even hold yourself as senior leaders accountable for training managers how to give a reference appropriately without defaming someone. That's, that's so sick. That's so twisted. But we, as working people, have accepted a lot of it. And I'm trying to wake us up to say no. Make distinctions. Be discriminating. This, this kind of discriminating. It's a great question to ask in an interview. Does your company allow you to give references to former employees, but you can't ask it because they all don't. It's, it's like saying, does your company give people employment contracts or pay them three months if they get laid off? No, don't, they don't do it. They don't, in the United States, they don't do both of those things. A lot of us have to get energized for that energy to shift. Although I'll tell you what, I've been writing for at least 20 years about the thing where they ask you your past salary and now in half the US states, it's illegal to do that. I'll take a little energetic credit for that. At least I've been putting my intention out there. That's a good thing for all of us to do, to think about what can shift with us, what impact could we have you know, on a practical level, logistical level down on the ground, or just at an energetic level, spiritual level, universal level, whatever. What can we put out there as intention and talk to ourselves and other people about? So yeah, that's episode 37. If you have a question, for me, please send it to support at humanworkplace.com. Thank you so much for listening and keep growing your flame.